Today's episode is sponsored by Von Finch Capital. If you're interested in investing alongside me in the same type of real estate opportunities that I personally invest in, then head over to Von Finch Capital and join their private investor network. You can do so at vonfinch.com slash invest. Join me on that next deal. And I look forward to seeing you on the inside. This is the Investor Mindset Podcast, and I'm Steven Pesavento. And for as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with understanding how we can think better, how we can be better, and how we can do better. And each episode, we explore lessons on motivation and mindset from the most successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. All right, guys, welcome back to the Investor Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Steven Pesavento, and today I'm very excited. I have Tim Bratz back in the studio. How are you doing today, Tim? Awesome, buddy. Good to be back. Appreciate you having me. Good to have you. Very excited to be diving in with you today. And for you, those of you guys who haven't heard Tim's earlier episode, Tim is a very successful real estate investor and mentor who's built a powerful portfolio. He focuses on buying apartment buildings, especially highly distressed uh, assets. And Tim's current portfolio exceeds 4,800 units valued at over 400 million. And today we're going to be talking about some of the important things that you need to know when you're deciding to go invest with somebody, when you're deciding to go put that capital to work, what's important and what are some of the things that go into that. So uh, without further ado, you ready to get into things, Tim? Let's rock and roll, bud. Hey, before I do, before we dive into all things passive investing, I want to go to a question I love asking. I know I didn't ask the first time, but I want to ask if we start out by taking a look back at earlier in your life, what events or influences from when you're in your childhood shaped who you are today? It's a good one, man. Um, I would say, you know, my dad, uh, he always had a full-time job. He was a police officer. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. And, uh, but my dad always had like a part-time business and he had like a personnel security business that provided personnel security for factories and foundries and, uh, you know, apartment buildings in downtown Cleveland, Ohio. And, um, and I knew I, just growing up, I knew that I didn't want to be a doctor or like, you know, something along those lines. And then I, I learned about entrepreneurship and I realized, although my parents told me to go to school, get good grades to get a good job, like my dad was making more money in his part-time business than he was in his full-time job. And he just, he was never willing to kind of cut ties and just double down or triple down or whatever on his, uh, on his part-time business. And um, that was very eye-opening to me that if you're an entrepreneur and you own your own business, you can set limitless income potential and you're not confined based on what somebody else tells you what you're worth in your job. And so that was, that was kind of a defining moment for me to say, Hey, I want to be an entrepreneur and, and move forward. So that was a big one. And then, um, you know, going through college, uh, knowing that I want to be an entrepreneur, uh, I was going through college 03 to 07 and the market was going gangbusters. And I was like, okay, it, because of real estate, you know, and I was like, that's what kind of pivoted me towards real estate. Just everybody was making money in real estate. And, um, that's what motivated a 20 year old kid back then. So, uh, yeah, that's that why that I moved towards real estate. That makes so much sense when you see somebody with limitless income potential, but you also see the trials and tribulations of having a career, a job. You think to yourself, hey, well, why don't I just go and do that? That seems like a much easier, better path. Sometimes not easier, but definitely uh, much more rewarding. So I can definitely sure. see that. And you know, you as an apartment investor, 
for those of you who don't know your background, you started out flipping houses, you moved into apartments, you've been able to scale up and grow very quickly. There's a lot of different models to investing in real estate, but they're specifically in apartment buildings. There's a lot of different models towards passive investing from you know syndication to, you could even go the direct ownership route and many in between. What, uh, what has led you to land on the model that you use uh, with your investors? Yeah, man. So I guess first I'll explain kind of what my model looks like. Um, what, what I've learned in lending money and borrowing money, and we've borrowed $100 million plus from mom and pop owners. We've never used institutional equity at all. Um, it's all people, entrepreneurs, people with money in a 401k, people with money just saved up. And um, we've always raised money in, in either a debt position or an equity position. And that's, that's usually the two types of options that they have. Um, debt is, hey, let me lend you money on a single family flip. You go and flip the house, pay me 15% annually on my money, right? <clears throat> I'm, I'm secured by note, a mortgage. I'm named as a additional insured on the insurance. And, you know, I don't, I don't have any downside risk, but I also don't have any upside potential or opportunity. Uh, but I have very predictable cash flow. And I know exactly what I'm going to make on my money over the course of the next six to 12 months. Conversely, then there's equity investments. Equity investments are more directed toward, uh, I, ha I have a piece of ownership in this apartment building, for instance, or some, some other commercial property. And my return is based on the performance of that asset. So if the asset's performing, great, there's some cash flow. If it's not performing, there's no cash flow. And so you don't have the predictability in an equity investment per se, uh, but you have the up, the up, side that could happen whenever you sell and have some appreciation, but you also have some downside risk as well. And what I've noticed is investors want both, right? And there were not a lot of different options out there that offered both. And so I created a little bit of a hybrid that is a debt and an equity piece combined into one. So uh, when we go and buy an apartment building, here's high level of what it looks like. We'll buy an apartment building that's going to be worth $10 million. Very, very easy to underwrite an apartment and know what it's going to be worth once it's a stabilized property, right? Because it's all based on the income approach. Income minus expenses equals NOI. Uh, the cap rate is a multiple of that. And so it says, hey, this 200-unit building is going to be worth, or 150-unit building, or whatever it is, is going to be worth uh, $10 million. My model has always been kind of the burst strategy. Buy, renovate, rent, refinance. It's very common in... Uh, single family, not so common in multifamily, but I come from single family. So I just kind of took that same strategy and I utilized it with apartment buildings. So in that, in that capacity, I'd have to be all into this building for around $7 million. So um, that way I can then refinance when once it's stabilized, let's call it 24 months, refinance and get a 70, maybe 75% LTV loan and pay off the short-term money. So that short-term money, if I'm all in for $7 million, I'll typically get about 80% loan to cost on that. So I'll get a, a bank loan or some sort of uh, bridge loan for about $5.5 million. And then I'll raise $1.5 million from my equity investors. And as you mentioned before, I do kind of medium to heavy value add type, type deals. I like those because I can buy them at a significant discount and I can create appreciation by putting sweat equity into these things versus just speculating on appreciation and having to wait five to 10 years in order to be able to then refinance again or sell the property. So my, my goal, I don't come from a ton of money. I'm a blue collar kid from Cleveland. So I've always had to needed to create that equity. Um, 
and I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty, right? Roll up the sleeves and just get to work. And so that's, there's a lot of work that goes in with heavier value ads, but you create a ton of upside with it too. So we'll go in and we'll buy the building and renovate it for $7 million. And again, I'll get a bank loan or a bridge loan for about five and a half. I'll raise money from my investors for about a million and a half. And I know that I can stabilize that property in let's call it 12 to 18 months. So if I'm gonna borrow a million and a half dollars, I have very predictable uh, debt service, essentially. It's pref payments, right? But I, I, I kind of liken it to almost like debt service. And I create an interest reserve if the property cannot cover its own debt payments or its own pref payments to the investors. Just like we would on the, on the primary mortgage, we do the same thing with our pref payments and we build it into the all-in for $7 million. So it's part of the cost basis and that, that's what we utilize to underwrite the deal. Uh, but what we can do from that is even if the property is not performing, we can still make quarterly distributions to our investors regardless of the property's performance. And it creates that predictable cash flow that they like to see. So we typically pay you know, an eight to 10% uh, preferred return fixed and, and um, pay as you go, right? So not based on the cash flow, it's just paid as you go. So on one and a half million dollars, if we know it's going to take us 18 months, a year and a half to stabilize that deal, we'll go and and uh, create a, a, essentially a pref reserve of, what is that, about $225,000, you know, if we're going to pay a 10% return. So it, it we just build that in, just like there's the cost of the roof and the cost of the flooring and the cost of the fixtures, there's the cost of money. And so we just build that into the overall underwriting. And, um, and that's part of the all in for 7 million bucks. So we stabilize the deal, it starts cash flowing and cover its own pref payments in 12 to 18 months. We'll then refinance within that 24 month period. It's been a, a little bit extended because of the whole COVID and, you know, getting tenants out and getting supplies in and all that stuff. So we're probably more in the 24 to 36 month time frame now. Um, at least that's the expectation that we're setting with our investors. Um, and so let's, let's say it takes us 24 months though, we'll refinance, put long-term agency debt in place at a 75% LTV loan. So on a $10 million valuation, we'll get seven and a half million. I'm able to take five and a half and pay off the bridge debt. It will take one and a half pay off the equity investors. And then there's still about a half a million dollars of non-taxable refi proceeds that get carved up amongst everybody. So from the investor's perspective, they're earning a 10% return on their investment while their money's invested, which is very respectable. After two years, they get all their money back. So they don't have any chips on the table anymore. All, they pulled all their chips off the table, but they still maintain equity in perpetuity. So we essentially give them kind of like a waterfall of around, let's call it, 25% of the equity forever, even after they've been cashed out of that deal. So now they can share in the, they can the um, depreciation, the property natural appreciation, principal pay down, those refinance proceeds and any future sales proceeds. So it creates uh, predictable cash flow, like a, like a debt investment would, and it offers the limitless potential and limitless upside like an equity investment would uh, without the downside risk of that. So it's, um, it's worked out pretty, really, really, really well for us. We've raised a lot of money, like I mentioned, so, uh, but it's a lot of work. You know, it's a lot of work on our part to find great deals and to operate great deals. So in, the, in, in this scenario, essentially uh, what happens is you've created a PREF payment very similar to that of uh, institutional investors or institution style. But what you've done is you've done an 8 to 10% preferred return that's paid uh, as the project goes. You essentially over-raise 
the money so that you can pay back the investors their money with that PREF payment if it's not cash flowing. And then at the two to three year mark, you'll refi that money. Uh, you'll refi their money out and then they hold 25% of the upside. So yeah. um, that makes sense. Well, it's definitely an option for people to be able to make. There's a lot of different uh, benefits uh, to this model as well as others. What would you say the downside is for uh, investors on this and why they might choose something else? And what's the upside of going with a model where they get that, that set craft and it's a, it's a pretty high preferred return um, with just a, a smaller piece of the back end? Yeah, so I, I've seen every, every side of the spectrum. I know some other syndicators who will raise the money, they pay 6% only if it cash flows. And then whenever they refinance or sell, they pay another 6%. And then the, the operator keeps 100% of, of all the equity. Um, so I've seen that. I think that's one side of the spectrum. I think if you pay somebody that way, as soon as somebody dangles you know, a 13% carrot or, or some other kind of just a little bit or maybe the same IRR, but, but paid in full or something, I think they jump ship, right? I create a lot of loyalty in the way that I have structured mine. So I like giving the equity in perpetuity. It doesn't cost me anything other than opportunity cost um, to make some money on that, on that deal long-term, but it doesn't add to the cost basis to give up a little bit more equity to my investors. And on the other side, you got traditional syndication where, you know, maybe it's a lower pref, but they want 70% of the equity in the deal. But then there's, there's fees to the general partners of acquisition fees and asset management fees and fundraising fees and sponsorship fees and all this other stuff where you can fee and take some money off the table. And I think, and, and, and listen, we do all of it, right? It just depends more on the deal. If it is a, um, if it's a deal under a million bucks and we're just going to buy it and renovate it, we're just going to pay a, a, a flat debt uh, to like a hard money lender and then refinance them back out and then keep 100% of the equity. If it's a deal that's heavier value add or middle value add in that million to $20 million range is usually our bread and butter, $5 million to $20 million, then we'll, um, uh, we'll do kind of this, this hybrid. And if it's a stabilized deal, then maybe we'll give up more equity, take some fees because there's not as much heavy lifting on our part. If I can find a $300 million deal and take it down with an equity investor that writes one single check and I can get an asset management fee, uh, an acquisition fee, a dispo fee, and keep 20 to 30% of the equity in that deal and just have third-party management handle everything. And all I had to do is kind of put some moving parts together. That makes a lot of sense, especially if you don't have to exit that property inside a certain time frame, right? And so um, if- I think, if what, I like, I think uh, what I like about your model here, uh, Tim, is that it's really great for an operator and it's great for investors who are looking for a little bit of both. They're yep. looking for that preferred return, but they're looking for just a little bit of back end, and they want to be a hundred percent sure that they're going to get those payments every single month or every quarter, wherever that is. So I think there is a benefit to it. It's just this is why it's so important for investors to sit down and get really clear on what you want and why you want it. Mm -hmm. Are you looking for cash flow every single month? Are you looking for equity growth uh, at the end of the the investment? Are you looking for a hybrid of the two? Um, and then as you go out into the marketplace, you can start getting familiar with different operators. You start trusting who they are, their ability to execute, and then you start looking at how they've structured the deal. What is going to end up benefiting you as the investor? What's going to end up compensating them as the operator? And coming from this place of recognizing the operator needs to be compensated for the work that they're going to do. Otherwise, they're not going to take that risk, put the capital, time, effort, 
uh, the reputation on the line to go and do a project. And so I think it's really, really important for folks to get clear on what they want, why they want it. And then when they go out, they can look and really compare the different opportunities and be able to say, hey, this is a good fit for this part of my portfolio. And this is a good fit for another part. So I, I definitely, I, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Tell us, what do you find? Real quick, you, work- you, you, teased, you teased two things that I want to hit on real quick, if that's okay. Um, so, so first of all is, is another thing to consider is timeline, right? Like how long do you want your money invested for? And so like, if I'm turning over money every 24 months or so, you can, you have a little bit more velocity on your capital than you do in a traditional syndication that maybe your money's sitting for the next five to seven years. So you can get into two or three deals, have a little bit more velocity on that. So really you can get 70% of a deal over here in a traditional syndication, or if you get into two or three deals, you can have 25% of three different deals. It's almost like the same thing, right? 75% if you add it all up. So it's something to consider as well. And then the other thing was, um, uh, oh, oh, uh, I, I, in my hybrid model, I really don't take a bunch of fees and stuff either. I don't, I don't think it, uh, because I'm being compensated more in equity. So I don't think it's fair to take all those fees that a lot of other people will take in traditional syndication. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, dude, I love traditional syndication and I would do that for a certain type of deal. It's just the deals that I do typically fall in this hybrid model. And, um, and I structured it in a way that I, I get compensated when the investor, <clears throat> excuse me, when the investors get their money back. Right. So to your point, you know, making sure that the, that the operator gets paid and gets paid well, right, is very, very important because if they're not going to get, make a bunch of money, then why are they would be, I mean, dude, it's a path of least resistance, right? For any human being is there's a, there's a, a self-interest as well. So you got to make sure that it makes a lot of sense to compensate them and that they're going to get paid really, really well for doing this deal. I just think there's certain ways that you, that operator can get paid, that incentivizes them to be in the same boat, rowing in the same direction as the equity investors as well. So with that understanding uh, here, and if everyone's on the same page, we're looking to make sure that we've got opportunities that are win-win for both parties. Both the investors need to feel really great about investing in a deal. The operators need to feel really great about putting in all that effort, time, and energy, and risk that goes into going and closing these deals. What have you found, Tim, that holds most passive investors back from getting started uh, making these kind of passive investments? Because the upside's so great, but yet so few people uh, are actually investing in real estate in this way. Yeah, man, I think I think that's a great question. I think uh, probably it's educa- education, right? Like everybody feels familiar with the stock market; they hear about it, they see it on the news every single day. They're not talking about syndications on the news, and I think it's just uh, it's an education piece. And it's, you know, the more you educate people, that's why you're doing a phenomenal job with this podcast, right? That's why I've been able to grow because I'm always educating people on social media about what we do and how we do it and why it makes sense and why we can pay these kinds of returns and all this other stuff. And it's just, it's an education piece. So it's not a sales process. You don't have to go and pitch somebody on investing with you. You have to educate them on why it's better than their other options that they're looking at. Yeah, I think that's so smart. It's such a good way you put that because at the end of the day, sometimes people will feel like, oh, they're being sold an investment, but quite the opposite. They're being educated in what that opportunity is. Most people really, when you're making this kind of a big of investment, for some people, 50,000 is a big investment. For other people, 500,000 is a big investment. Regardless of what camp you're in, you need to understand the opportunity. You need to understand 
what the operator's background, track record, and experience is. You need to feel comfortable making that decision to invest your money. And so spend that time getting clear upfront um, before you then go forward and make an investment. And so when it comes down to getting clear on what some of those pieces are, understanding who the operator is, the deal is, the market, those kind of pieces, what do investors need to look for uh, when they're going through that process of getting comfortable and then making that decision? Yeah, I, I think uh, me, whenever I'm investing in a project or thinking about bringing capital or sponsoring a loan for somebody, I'm looking at essentially three things. One, what is the asset, right? Is it, is it something that, and real estate's not a hard sell, right? Real estate, everybody knows real estate. They live in real estate. They drive by it every single day. Uh, they're familiar with HGTV. So it's not a hard sell to talk to somebody about uh, investing in real estate. They just don't know how to. So going through the process of educating them, right, on investing in real estate, is one thing, but you know, then it dive, I dive into like the asset class. I like apartments. I know that, you know, if, uh, you know, shit hits the fan kind of a thing, my team can step in and operate it if we had to. Um, I, I think, you know, units, you can fill up and rent apartments a lot faster than some of the other asset classes. I just, I like apartments. So I prefer that. I like B-class apartments. I don't get into luxury. I don't get into the rougher parts that are more management intensive. So that's one of the things that I look for necessarily. And I think a lot of other investors look at what is the asset. I think the second thing that investors look at is the return on investment, you know, and, and twofold on that. One is, is the reward worth the risk, right? Is me putting my money out there um, and the return I'm going to get worth the risk of me putting my money out there. Uh, so that's the first thing that you got to weigh out. And then the second thing to weigh out or that, that I look at is uh, opportunity cost, right? Like where else could I put my money to earn a better return or uh, have greater upside in a project? And so, you know, you, you could have some investors that, um, you know, are hard money lenders and they want a 24% return. You have other people who want, you know, a two or 3% return, right? Just kind of depends on who you're talking to. And then the, I think the most important thing is the third, which is the borrower and conveying that you have the conviction to get it done, right? I, I know somebody who, who uh, one of my business partners was banked by the same guy who used to bank Trump back in the day or something. And Trump was worth $10, million, $10 billion or something. And, um, I remember him telling a story of like, hey, you know, he really couldn't write a check for a hundred million bucks. And to be worth 10 billion and not be able to write a check for a hundred million, that's like being worth a million dollars, not being able to write a check for 10,000, right? And so you're like, why do you keep on banking him if he does, has zero liquidity at the time? And I don't know what his financials look like now, but the banker goes, because he gets things done. We know he's going to get the job done. We know that, that he can refinance, he can raise more capital. Like we know he just gets things done. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've conveyed to my investors is like, I will work third shift at Taco Bell if I have to get you your money back, right? I've lost money on deals, but my investors never have lost money on deals, right? I'll, I'll give them equity in a new deal just to recompensate them on a, on a deal that didn't pay them out. What we hope to pay them out on uh, the past one. So I've done plenty of those things and it, and it plants seeds and, um, and it builds your character, right? It, it allows them to see you as somebody who is going to do the right thing and is, is going to show up and is going to get the job done. And so uh, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking more for, for the borrower, more for the character of the borrower than anything else. And then I look at the returns and then I look at the asset kind of thing. So, um, you know, if it's somebody that I know can get some things done, like I think it's super, super important to convey to your, to your investors. The, the smartest investors, they start with the operator first, the borrower, mm -hmm. as you're saying. And the reason is because just like you outlined, you've lost money on deals. I've lost money on deals and I've done exactly the same thing. I've stroked checks 
you know, two figure, three figure checks, investors got paid what they were expecting to get. And I lost money on the deal. But the great thing about that was one, I learned a lot about what not to do. And two, those investors are with me forever. Mm-hmm. And when people start seeing that level of character the same way you, you end up really being able to build a track record in the market that is really strong. And so I think it's important to remind the investors out there that when you're having these due diligence conversations, you're asking questions like, tell me about a time you've lost money on a deal or tell me how you'd handle that. Uh, when people say, well, I've never lost money and I don't ever plan to, and it's never going to happen. Let's be realistic. Even if you don't lose money on the entire deal, you're still, there's things that are going to happen in an investment, they're not going to go right. It's real estate. I mean, who who could have predicted COVID, right? Who could have predicted uh, banks tightening up? I mean, it's just, there's so many different variables. I think a great question is, how are you controlling the variables that you can control, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, tell me how you're mitigating risk in, in your different investments. Tell me about your worst deal you've ever done. Tell me about the best deal you've ever done. Tell me about the time you lost money on a deal. You know, like, I think those are all great questions to ask the operator. And, um, you know, how do I get screwed on this? right? How do, how do I lose my money on this deal? How do I, like, you know, I, I think that's all, those are all great questions. And they're asking those questions in their heads anyway. So I try to just punch them in the face and answer them before they even ask those questions, right? And hit on it before. Because uh, then I look like a mind reader and they're like, I, they know that it's something I've spent time, which I have, right? I've spent a lot of time formulating my business model in a way that mitigates risk because I, dude, I lived through the last 08 crash, you know, and, um, and saw a lot of people worth a lot of money who were worth not a lot of money. You know, there were people worth tens of millions of dollars that went bankrupt and people worth tens of millions of dollars that are now worth hundreds, if not billions of dollars. And you're like, how does the same market affect everybody? Right? Like, I, I don't understand how that happens. And, uh, people move in different directions based on the same market happening. Like, how is that possible? Well, they have different business models. They have different strategies. They have different ways of mitigating risk and different types of assets that they invested in and, um, a lot of different moving parts. So, uh, I think asking those questions, you, you got to do your due diligence on, especially the operator. It's really smart advice here. And the truth is a lot of people went through a lot of pain in 2008 and it can be really powerful for you young active operators or for you passive investors out there to ask some questions, not from a place of fear, but from a place of feeling what that felt like to have major loss or the fear that goes along with it, not to go and live in the fear, but to experience what that emotion is. So you can use that in a powerful way to be conservative, to be able to preserve capital and do things that are really smart. So we're getting the end of time here. I've got one or two questions left. And I'm curious, what are the top actions that you think new investors or people who are looking to start investing more in this space can take to start seeing more success in the investments that they're making? Man, you know, when I was going through real estate, I was pretty bad at it for the first seven years because I was messing up on my own and learning from my own mistakes. It was, and I had a couple of individual mentors and stuff who kind of point me in the right direction, uh, but nobody I really like linked arms with until I joined and I got invited out to a mastermind event. And um, it was about 15 entrepreneurs sitting in a, in a room together and going around the table, just talking about our biggest hurdles and struggles that we were facing in business and, you know, how to punch through some of those. And, um, man, d- doing that on a quarterly basis, I didn't have one mentor. I had 15 mentors, right? Everybody in the room was giving me insights. And there were people that, that led from a business standpoint. Others had great relationships. Others had great health. And so I, I was able to lean on different people for different, um, uh, successes in their life that I wanted to emulate in mine. And, um, 
dude, I, I think I think masterminds are hands down the best investment that I ever made. And I, I'm so obsessed with them that I'm in five different masterminds and I run two more masterminds on top of that. Uh, just because the the resources, the connections, uh, you know, I get a lot of a lot of young guys hit me up and say, Hey man, I got twenty thousand dollars. What kind of deal should I buy? I was like, dude, go and join a mastermind. And then you'll learn how to, because if you go and spend $20,000 on a deal, you got to go save $20,000 again to go do another deal versus spend that on a mastermind, meet people who have private money, learn how to raise capital and source that to then deploy into deals. And you can go and use other people's money for your projects. You know, you're creating a huge value for them. They're, they're helping you out and um, you can both build wealth together. And uh, like the, the connections I've, I've made, the resources I've met, the amount of money I've, I've raised, the deal flow I've gotten, and um, uh, just joint venture partners, all of it has come from mastermind events. So that has, that, I was on a steady growth, and then it just, dude, it was like a rocket ship taking off as soon as I understood the value of these masterminds. Yeah, some great advice the power of community has made an incredible impact in my business as well. So I love talking with guys like you who are out in the business, growing, doing big things, especially young guys that, you know, just slightly younger than you, I can look up to and say, Hey, I like what you're doing. How can we model the things we, we like and, and start experiencing some of those same outcomes. So very grateful to have you here. How can people get in touch with you um, if they're interested? Yeah, I think just connect with me on social media. I'm I'm really active on Facebook and Instagram and uh, and YouTube. So just uh, just find me on on there. I'm at Tim Brotz and um, just shoot me a message. I know I answer all of my own messages, and if I can help point you in the right direction or offer some resources and um, some guidance, I'd be happy to do so. So uh, yeah, buddy. Hey, I appreciate you having me, man. It's always a great conversation with you. And uh, congrats on your successes. I know you picked up some big deals over the past year. So um, awesome seeing your growth, and uh, I can't imagine where we're all going to be five years from now, man. It's exciting stuff. Can't even imagine. Well, uh, thank you guys for listening. As a reminder, ask yourself the question, what did you learn in today's episode and how can you apply it in your life today? Go take some action on that. And we'll see you guys on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Investor Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Head over to theinvestormindset.com to join the Insider Club, where we share tools and strategies from the top investors and entrepreneurs on how to take it to the next level.